Hi, and welcome to the Strategic Business Advisor podcast. Today, we are interviewing Travis Bako. He is one of the founders and vice president of Recoil Energy LLP out of Houston, Texas. He is a longtime oil and gas executive. He started out, he was in a landman, and now he is one of the executives of a, a pretty good sized energy firm. We're going to talk to Travis about several things. Stay tuned. And we're going to talk a little bit about recoil later, but Travis is known. He's a master negotiator and he's been into entrepreneurial ventures pretty much his entire adult career. So I want to talk to him about that as well as any oil and gas outlook he may have that if you're, if you're in the business, this guy would be in the know. He has a good idea as to where things are headed. So hey, hi, Travis. Thanks for being on our podcast today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, yeah, one of the first things I think a lot of people who watch this podcast, they're basically business owners, they're entrepreneurs, or maybe they want to be. I think there's a lot of uh, people who are like thinking of maybe starting their own business, especially since the whole COVID thing, a lot of people working from home and stuff. I think some people saw some opportunities. They could do something from home, especially with technology today. Sure. So I guess, what are your thoughts on entrepreneurship? What are some of the qualities, the skill, the skill set that makes us for a successful entrepreneur? Yeah, that's hard to put into words because it's such a vast kind of array and you have people that are very successful entrepreneurs who were right time, right place, and it didn't take a lot of effort. And then you have some really smart people that have been grinding for 10 years and situations have just been stacked against them. Being able to see an opportunity before others, I think is, is huge. If you're going to fail at something, fail fast and be ready to pivot. Don't spend too much time chasing an idea that is just getting, the, at some point you got to realize some things just aren't going to work. Not everything's going to work. And maybe you can take a piece of that idea and expand it in a different direction. It doesn't mean that it was a complete failure, but you have to be willing to adjust. And, being able to take a gamble, take a risk. It's getting out of your comfort zone is not easy, but that's usually where some of the biggest rewards where I found they are. Yeah, that's probably the number one thing that you started, that you mentioned was see opportunity before others do. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, they see opportunity where others see nothing but risk. It's not like others are gonna come along, maybe ahead of other entrepreneurs, but most people, I'm just saying, oh man, look the opportunity. Most people are gonna say, oh wow, that looks dangerous. That looks scary. I think there's a lot of risk involved. And yes, if you're gonna fail fast, I like that. That's, uh, I guess that's, a, that's a, a distinction I've been trying to articulate, but you made it so plain. If you're gonna fail fast, don't grind it out over 20 years. And it's like, oh, I think I need to do something else. <laughs> I've got quite a few under my belt. I've learned that when I do it, to do it quickly, yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I've noticed is that entrepreneurs don't see they don't see temporary roadblocks. They don't see them as failures or things to stop. They're always, if there's something that gets in the way, they're immediately looking for, how can I get around this? How can I get through this? What do I need to do to get past this? It's not, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. I didn't see this coming. And that's what most people do. That's the most, so there's something about, I know what you want to call it, persistence, determination, like you don't, don't let roadblocks get in the way. Certainly. And I, yeah. I think the ability to identify a roadblock versus cliff is the important thing. You, know, yeah. you don't want to keep pushing and go off a cliff, but roadblocks, I, I don't care what you're going to do, what business you're in, there's challenges. Nothing's just laid out for you. Yeah. I, I can't do an industry. So yeah, really being able to identify the challenges and roadblocks and know what you're up to, find a way around it, a way through it, or really, there's a win-win in every situation. 
Sometimes you just got to dig deep, look hard, and really work the deal to get it done. Yeah. Yeah, true. And here's, a, here's another question that just kind of popped in my mind. My experience or whatever is my evaluation is most entrepreneurs, most really great entrepreneurs make terrible managers. And most great managers make really horrible entrepreneurs because the skill set, my assessment, the skill sets of both are so divergent, they're very far apart. And what makes a really great manager makes a poor entrepreneur. A great manager is not going to take risk. He's not going to see opportunity. He's going to keep everything just moving along, managing with resources, keeping it, keeping on task with a predetermined goals and objectives where an entrepreneur is just, he's just entrepreneurs all over the place. Sometimes they see opportunity, they grab it. They see some other opportunity along the way, they'll grab that. And as you sit, they'll pivot, manage good, great manager is not going to do that. That would be way too inconsistent. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't great entrepreneurs who are also great managers. I'm sure there are some, I haven't found any yet or seen them in action. Let me say that I may know some, I haven't seen them in action. What's your, I guess, what's your perspective? What's your experience there? Couldn't agree more. And I think great entrepreneurs hire great managers (laughs) for sure. And not hiring a great manager doesn't make you a bad entrepreneur. It just makes you maybe less efficient or effective than you could be. Say Uh, that again. I said, it just makes you more hiring a great manager. Doesn't make you, I don't think a bad entrepreneur. No, I think it makes you more efficient and effective. And if you don't do that, you're not maybe living up to your full potential. Things tend to get bottlenecks and I'm totally guilty of it. I've had to work on my management skills for a long time and they're absolutely the analytical kind of check every single box. I get lost in those details. So I have people that that help me with that and I manage them kind of from a higher level. So I think most entrepreneurs are looking at the landscape and the horizon, looking for opportunities, how can we capitalize on them? And if you get caught up in the day to day, the details of running a business kind of that forward sight get lost it's kind of technical on it yeah a little have i heard this said great entrepreneur who doesn't hire great management is a frustrated employee of the company (laughs) (laughs) because entrepreneurs generally because it's their baby they will get distracted by all the minutiae and go get involved in a cash flow thing here and a production thing there and a distribution thing and they go get bogged down in all these details instead of doing what they do best bringing opportunity and capitalizing opportunity to the business, they go get, they go get stuck and rutted in the minutia of stuff, which they're not good at anyway. And they're very frustrated because they don't see these problems as, as much just do this. And their employees are going, yeah, but, yeah, but, and what about, and it, yeah, they're, they're frustrated employees. They become employees. They basically create an organization that they're now a W2 employee of, and they don't have the freedom to do what started out to do in terms of creating the business they become. And again, most of the people that I know that do that entrepreneurs that have become basically employees of the business that not only they're frustrated, they hate coming to work because they take on everything rather than like having it out, let, letting some management team handle that stuff. They come into work and it's like, I wonder what's going to get dumped in my lap today. True. And I'm a real high ownership guy. So I, I want to be involved with I've never gone into a meeting where I had to report bad news and said it's somebody else's fault. If it's in my shop, it's my fault. High ownership, I'm involved in everything. I work alongside everybody, but you do, and this was the hardest thing probably in my career that even today I still struggle with. Because the bigger you grow, the more you get going with your business, the more of those details you're gonna have to trust other people. 
you can't do it all or else you're just going to burn out or you're going to start missing bigger opportunities to focus on smaller details. Yeah. Hiring people that you trust, and it's never, nobody's walked into my organization or anywhere with me and started day one with my trust. You earn that over time, but really pushing stuff on people, giving them the opportunity to fail. And if they do, recognize it fast, correct the mistake, and pivot, make changes if you need to. But it's a struggle, it's a huge struggle for me. I do want to do it all and just can't be done. Okay, one of the things I've heard about you over the years is that you're a master negotiator. That you're, some people say he's a great salesman, some people say you're a great negotiator. Based on what I've heard, it's that you're a good negotiator. And I don't know if you have some distinctions that you can share with us on all that today, but I guess what's your experience of negotiating, of successfully negotiating land leases and deals and all the things you have to negotiate. You're the VP of what development and vice president of land and business development. Okay, so, so that's very. There's a lot of negotiation involved in there. So it's probably a really good fit for you. Yeah, yeah, it is. And different types of negotiations. I may be out meeting with a landowner who's a third generation farmer and has never left the family plot of land. That afternoon, I may be talking to an investment banker about terms of credit. That's a little out of my role. I don't negotiate those actually, but that's the vast array of different people that I deal with. And really everything can be looked at as a negotiation, whether it's an employee over pay, vendors over pricing, timelines. People say, I can get that to you Friday. You say, I need it Wednesday. But let's negotiate and find out how to get there. I would say my I'm a horrible salesman. I don't sell anything. I find solutions and win-wins. And I think one of the best ways that I do that is I listen. So if I'm trying to do a deal with somebody, first and foremost, you can't negotiate a deal if you don't know what benefits the other person or what they're trying to get out of the deal. Some people are money motivated. Some people don't care about money at all. And it's funny, in the oil business, you run into those third generation farmers that have had oil on their property hundred years and they're filthy rich. They're not, they don't really care about the check you have right. in your hand. It, it's, it's not going to be life changing. It's more about how you're going to work with them. Treat everybody with the same amount of respect and, and really just talk with people. But at the end of the day, people who are successful in negotiations find a win-win. And however you get there, that's your own way, that's your kind of own style. But to me, yeah, it's, it's listening more than I talk. And then when it's time to lay out the deal, then I talk all I need to. And sometimes too much. Yeah, those are some great points in that you do a lot of listening about what are the concerns, what are the... And again, some people probably don't really haven't... Full, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Haven't finally articulated what the concerns are, what their goals are, especially if you're approaching them. So and it takes, it takes some conversation. find it. What's that? Whether it's good for you or not. You know, so what is the holdup? We, we just can't quite get there. You're not quite ready. Is it uncertainty? Is it that you've got a concern that you haven't told me about? Is it that you just don't know? And a lot of these, like my experience, a lot of these oil and gas contracts are fairly foreign to a landowner, so to speak, and they just don't know. And they, either they want to go to an attorney, which is fine. A lot of times that's actually preferable because the attorney does know what he's doing and is 
comfortable. So I can negotiate sometimes a lot better with somebody that really knows what they're doing For sure. over somebody that, that doesn't quite understand the circumstance. But if you're out of your league, hire a professional, and that kind of goes back to what we were just saying. But I kind of got where I was going there, to be honest with you. You're talking about these farmers who might hire an attorney and you found it more comfortable dealing with attorneys who are was familiar with land leases and all that kind of stuff. We were talking about listening and being able to talk to people who may not have finely articulate, maybe don't really have much of an idea as to what their goals are, what their concerns are, what their whatever are. In other words, if you right. approach them and they don't know you're coming and you're approaching them on a land lease, and they're not familiar with land leases. And like you say, the uncertainty of it all, because they don't know, they might go to a lawyer. It's probably in their best interest that they do. Certainly, sometimes it is. The, yeah, so uh, helping them identify their concerns or identifying the roadblocks. Okay, right. what is standing between us getting a deal? And if you don't know, that's fine. But the more we talk and the more I listen, hopefully you can pull out what that roadblock is out of them, even if they're not able to tell you. So when you go into a negotiation, do you have some, I got to have these things, these one, two, three things, whatever, and these I'd like to have, but don't necessarily have to have and things like you go, do you have some kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for? A rigorous structure. These, these are absolute. These are negotiable. These are disposable in terms of what you're willing to do, what you're willing to give to get what you want. Certainly. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying before. There are things that I have to have in my world, certain protection, indemnity, stuff like that. But again, every landowner is different. Some people don't live on the property and really don't care if you go put an oil rig in the middle of the pasture. Some people, it's family property. It means a lot to them. And they don't ever want to see any of your equipment on their property. They just don't want you to step foot. So again, that's when putting something together, if we're going to go drill on oil, we may have as many as a couple of hundred owners involved in one. And so it's a lot of, again, listening to what people want, negotiating on those terms. But yes, they're definitely in every one of my contracts, certain parameters that I have to have, certain things that I would like to have, and certain things that I'm willing to live without. Now, when I come to you with a, my deal, I want all of that. Yeah. But very rarely do I get it all. And sometimes <laughs> it is, I'm going to have to pay more for it. Maybe I get everything I want, but my cost, my cost went up. And sometimes it's very simple. You, you can be out talking to somebody and just roadblock. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to drill a water here after I leave the water well, and you can use it for your cows or ag purposes. But that water well could be anything in any negotiation. It's a win. It's something else that I'm adding to the deal that will benefit the landowner. And maybe it's something he hasn't even thought of. So yeah, finding positives and you know, that's a negotiation. If you just go to somebody with, here's everything I want and here's what I'm willing to pay. That's not a negotiation. That's offer. Cool. So listening is probably the biggest thing you found in negotiating to get to the other person's concerns so that they can be addressed. Yeah, I would think so. If you don't know what the other person wants, how are you going to deliver it? Yeah, and I, obviously there's some deals you can just walk in and they're going to say yes. And okay, great. But you always, I just feel like you need to know what the other person has or what they want and what they're bringing to the table. Now, a lot of times somebody will come to me with a counter offer to my original offer. 
And you meet somewhere in the middle. I think attorneys are most famous for just asking for the moon, knowing that they're going to give up on some of it. And, and don't be turned off. You can ask for the moon and settle for something less than that. I have seen agreements before that have come back to me or a counteroffer that is just totally unreasonable and something that I would never be able to deliver on. But it's a starting point. You got to start somewhere in every deal and can't get to the finish if you don't start. So a yeah. counteroffer to me is, okay, great. Look, they are willing to get to a finish line. This is just, we're going to have to take a different path to get there. Okay, cool. So the oil market is kind of all over the place, especially since COVID started, right? <laughs> we had that day where the contract closed, people were paying money to buy oil. Like you gotta, I will pay you. <laughs> Oh yeah, I will pay you. It was, it was crazy because there was no storage room. That's correct. Say again. That is correct. Yeah. It was a very interesting Monday. Yeah, it was, you, people were paying money to sell. That's what it was. I'll pay you money. Yeah. To so is what happened there is the people that bought the physical contracts had to take physical delivery of it, and storage was full. Right. If you don't uh, fulfill your end of the bargain in the contract and take that oil. It is a big time, I think it's a Chicago mercantile exchange, but it's a big time penalty. It's a big deal. So people were avoiding that at all costs. They physically couldn't take the contracts that they had purchased. So they went out to the market and said, Hey, I got this contract for $40 a barrel. I can take it out. If I'll give you, you know, give me $30 for it and you can have the oil. So everybody with storage starts saying, okay, $30. And then it was like, I can buy it for 20. And within the matter of three, four hours, it went with the negative $37 for the first time in, in history, the oil went negative. Right. Now that was a, a, a momentary deal over the physical contracts. Right. Us as an operator, we produce oil, we sell to a purchaser. So we never sold our oil for negative 37.50. That was really a financial contract issue that was short-lived, but it affected prices um, oh, yeah. on court. I believe that following month, the highest price we could get per barrel of oil was a little over $8, down from 43 and two months prior in the 60s. So that, that hurts. Yeah. And not only that, it was so bad, you need the cash. So you are selling oil at $8, even at a loss, just because you need that $8 so bad to survive. So it looks like markets have stabilized prices have been up in the it, i think in the low 70s for a while i think they're back towards the middle 60s now yeah 68 69 i think last i checked i haven't looked at it today but yeah prices have rebounded they've been steady and actually violent increases and in run up in price isn't necessarily good for you either. most companies are hedged so when you see violent spikes in oil price it's that's uncertainty in the market just the same as if it goes the other way now obviously we enjoy higher prices and that does good things for our business but sometimes it can cause uncertainty not be a great thing as well so looking out over the next i don't know are you comfortable making any kind of general predictions about prices or what have you going out one three i don't know five years three years one year yeah i listen to a lot of smart people and a lot of those smart people say polar opposite views. You can go, if you want to find an article that says oil is going to be $12 in the next three years, you can find it. And somebody that probably has a really good 
reasoning behind why they're saying what they're saying. Personally, I think we're going to stay in this range now, but things happen. COVID is great, and now we're dealing with the Delta variant, variant and another spike. What the future holds is always uncertain, but if without any catastrophic change to the market, I think we're in the 70 to 60 to 70 dollar range for the at least in the Q2 of 2022. I'm not really sure the and look, the administration can change things at the drop of a hat, regulatory issues can come in. So there's a lot of global environment and global what's the word I'm looking for? Influences on this price that that I really don't know about. But as what I will say is during the pandemic, nobody had any money to drill new wells. And these wells decline. If you're going to grow production, you have to be drilling constantly. So all these operators in the U.S. that took this time off and stopped drilling wells and everybody's at home, sure, supply went down temporarily. But, excuse me, demand went down temporarily. But that supply is a tailing, uh, trailing. Indicator? Yeah, so it is... It's very quick. You can shut off production and stop bringing on new production very quickly. It's a lot harder to replace that. So while you can ramp down production or just shutting in production, you're going to have say a 65% decline year over year. It takes a lot longer and a lot more effort and a lot more wells coming on just to replace that production to get back to where you were. Supply is going to struggle to get back to pre-pandemic level. It's not a spigot that you can just get a turn off on and off. Yeah. And and that's what's keeping prices fairly steady and even increasing. Yeah. And I would think that whatever the the state's response to COVID in terms of lockdowns and all that kind of stuff with this Delta variant, we're not going to get into the politics of that, but if you have a large number of states start shutting things down and go back to the whole thing, a non-essential worker's got to stay home and shutting down small businesses and stuff that's going to have a that's going to have a pretty big impact on demand again going into this fall winter but again then you have other things like heating oil demand in the winter time the energy you need for the stay warm in the winter time yeah and then who knows what will happen out of the middle east or the afghanistan region that's a yeah that's a real poster personally i don't think a shutdown like the one we previously had will ever happen again if a disease comes out worse than i just Personally, I don't think people will abide by it the way that they did before. I, I would um, agree. You get vaccines and stuff, but I, I don't, I think you're gonna have a hard time locking down. But that said, this disease is real and people do die from it, it's scary. And so a lot of people that are scared or unable to get a vaccine or just don't want to are staying home. And that is affecting demand, but I don't think you're just gonna see an absolute shutdown like we did before. And look, forward thinking, personally, I'm in the exploration. So we drill the same mechanics going to drill on a natural gas or oil. So natural gas, currently our asset is 98% oil, which is very little gas. But back to pivoting, if the oil markets are so crazy and the domestic natural gas markets are more attractive, so there's an opportunity there. We could pivot into a natural gas producer, or at least increase our exposure to natural gas and sour. Hmm. So, again, the mechanics—you take a big piece of machinery and you drill a big hole in the ground and get to the 
formation that gives you a product. The renewable landscape is interesting, and there's a, a lot of money put into that right now. Is there, there any? Is any? Is there any form of renewable energy that is really worth its salt? I keep hearing about these big wind, the wind things. The amount of energy it takes to build one and put one up, they can never in its lifetime generate that much energy with the wind. Solar? Doesn't I, mean there's not money to be made in that business. Oh, I agree. That's money to be made putting them yeah, up. No, personally, I, personally, yeah, I'm not a big believer in it. And the electric cars, electricity comes from somewhere. Yeah. The natural gas, coal, nuclear. There are better solutions. I don't think that wind and solar, I don't think we're going to get there fast. Maybe one day through some technology, but not, not in the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, what a wonderful world it would be, but it's not reality. The other thing is everything is geared around fossil fuels, combustion engines, all that kinds of, how do you just overnight change in the economy and the machinery and vehicles and everything else, delivery systems to run on something like I don't know, batteries from solar energy. Even if you could come up with some kind of an, a battery that would collect massive amounts of solar energy and be able to efficiently store it and efficiently redistribute it for, for use in power, how would you retool the economy overnight? You wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. No matter what, fossil fuels are here for the foreseeable decade. Yeah. I don't yeah. see you getting away from them at, at any point. And even if you do go full electric, it's natural gas production. The U.S. has vast amounts of Yeah. And with the shale play, we potentially could. But again, I looked at the California wildfires. What happens if you're stranded there and you've got only electric vehicles and now your transmission lines are on fire? Where do you get the power to get out of harm's way? Hurricane. Old Gulf Coast, there's one headed towards you right now. Right. If your only way to travel is on electricity, which batteries have a finite storage capacity. You can't put a bunch of batteries in your trunk. It type where it is you can put fuel canisters. Electricity cannot be stored on a commercial scale for really any any amount that matters. Right. Was that a conference not too long ago and they said the new Tesla battery factory, the most technologically advanced battery factory in existence. It takes 500 years of battery production to produce enough batteries to pull one electricity for the U.S. for one day. Can you move a little closer to the microphone? You're kind of in there. Sure. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, it's better. It's better. Yeah. Uh, that landscape, we're not going to get away from fossil fuel anytime soon. And I think it's a dream. It's maybe a nice dream, but I don't think it's reality. Yeah, I saw an analysis. They had a diesel engine. Drive, that was a generator base. It's a generator being dri driven by a diesel engine, and you, you could fill up your Tesla electric car with it, the electric car thing. So it's a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. The analysis was is that the amount of diesel fuel that was being burned to charge up these Tesla cars so they could go, I think they, the equivalent was the Tesla cars getting like six, six miles per gallon. <laughs> Basically, yeah. when you do the conversion from diesel fuel to electricity, sure. and it was like, Ridiculous. Well, it's, anyway. you know, yeah, it's. I don't want to get too far out and have the. Yeah, uh, the, the technology's not there. The technology yeah, is the not technology there right is now. Not there. If it is, it's not widely known or it's not available. Somebody's got it up on a shelf somewhere. Sure. Okay, so listen, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Business, entrepreneurship, oil and gas, 
Nah, as a kid or young, people full of hope and wonder, nothing's easy. Unless you go win the lottery or walk into a family business. But even that, you've got family dynamics. Nothing's easy. And if you're in a great situation and you get comfortable in it, nobody's going to come and compete with you. It's always changing. You may have a wonderful business right now and corner the market and things are going great. Somebody's going to see that and copy it or come and try and compete with you. Hey, look, this guy works two hours a week doing acts. I want to do that. Yeah. So it's whatever you do is going to be a challenge and going to be always evolving. So if you get too comfortable anywhere, somebody's going to come take it from you. Just you got to always be grinding yeah. in one way or another. Yeah. You can't, don't take anything for granted. No, just walk from the penthouse to the outhouse is a lot shorter than it is from the outhouse to the penthouse. So it's a lot harder to get to a very comfortable situation. Yeah. And very quickly you can get out of one. Yeah. I've been, I've never been rich. I've been poor and okay several times. Yeah. It's uh, just roll with the punches. Yeah. Never quit. Yeah. Good. Okay. Final question. Would you rather be smart or lucky? Ooh, lucky all day long. A lot of people say smart and I'm of the, I'm in the lucky camp. I've seen a lot of smart people who have no luck and I've seen some decently smart people. They're not like rocket scientists or anything. They have enough intelligence who are really lucky, but generally because they work very hard and they don't quit. I'll take the lucky. Sure. And you can, if you're not smart, you can learn if you're not smart. That's uh, unless you're talking about a, a real defect, mental defect. If you're always be learned, if you're not smart in a particular category, there's books, the internet, my God, the amount of information that's available to people today yeah. is unreal, but can't go out and get luck out of a book and luck's luck's a hard thing to come by, but I work with a guy who was just the, the luckiest bastard on the face of the earth and things always seem to, to work out for him. And, you can also make your own luck, I guess people say, but yeah, I think I know a lot of dumb people that are really successful that have just been lucky in right place, right time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Okay. Uh, Good. I'm glad we sync on that. Yeah. Now, listen, Travis, thanks for your time this afternoon. Have a great weekend. I appreciate you being on our podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. We'll have to do it again uh, down the road. Sure thing. Have a good weekend. You too, man. Thanks, Travis. Sure thing, buddy. All right, buddy. Later.